I have, a, I have some key family members and friends that live in North Carolina, one in Germantown, Maryland, and uh, ironically, and without, I mean, like clockwork, they call me every August, and they say, hey, I was looking at the weather report, it's like 115 degrees there, why did you move to Arizona? <laughs> and it was everything I could do today to not call them and say, how's Maryland working for you, you know? And, but it, it, it's really not funny because then I realized that people do die of 115 degree heat in Arizona and uh, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters and really everybody uh, out east because it is an awful, awful storm. You know, I am from Cleveland, as you guys know, and from uh, Michigan and, you know, two feet there really isn't that much. But um, in, in those places that aren't used to that uh, and aren't ready for it, it can be uh, pretty traumatic. So as we go to the Word, uh, let's pray for the East Coast and uh, our time in the Word. God. Uh, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people in worship and to focus our minds and soften our hearts before you in preparation for the week ahead. I pray, God, that as we uh, do watch the news and see that uh, a blizzard that has caused 10 states to declare a state of emergency and a possible flooding and cold and wind that is there, um, your creation, Lord, uh, on, on, a, on a wild day, we pray, God, that you would uh, protect and provide uh, for people, uh, especially those, Lord, that are unprepared. Uh, God, we pray for the rescue workers, that you would give them wisdom and skill, and uh, the leaders, uh, that they would also be your hand of protection for people. And Lord, may we even hear stories that come out of it on how on an individual level, um, you heard people who cried out to you and intervened in ways that they look back and say, only God. Uh, Father, we're in a really amazing series right now out of your word, uh, looking at the nine fruits of your Holy Spirit that you have said you want to do in our lives and our very souls that others will see and wonder about. And I pray, God, that as we talk about joy today, that uh, you might be pleased and that uh, you might even teach us something we don't know. And I pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. So here's the deal uh, with this topic that's before us today, and this is really the starting point, gang, that we need to all latch on to, and it's this. There are a lot of Christians out there today who think they have joy when they really don't, and conversely, there's a lot of Christians who struggle and hurt and think they have no joy, and they really do. I need you to think about that tonight. There's a lot of Christians who I hear say they have joy, and I'm going to show you today as we define joy that I'm not sure they really do, and I'm not judging them. We just need to match our lives up against the very Word of God. But then conversely, there's a lot of Christians out there that are going through a lot of pain right now and a lot of struggle that don't think they have joy, uh, but I think they do. To put it plainly, uh, not every Christian who claims joy really has it, and not every Christian who thinks joy joy has escaped them, has perceived accurately. There's a lot more to joy than meets the eye. And now to fully get this today, we need to do two things with this topic before us of joy. First, we need to understand what joy is by defining it, and we're even going to contrast it to things that, is, to things that it is not, uh, like pleasure. You'll see what I mean in a minute here. And then once we've done that, we need to then get clear on how to experience joy uh, in our lives and to realize where it comes from and how we get it so that we can have more 
more of it. And the hope will be that when we're done here today, there might be more of us who will experience true joy in our lives and have a much more authentic expression of this fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's begin by first understanding joy. And to do so, I'm going to give you a good, workable, biblical definition of joy that at first glance, I'm going to warn you, is going to seem kind of cryptic and even confusing, but once you get it, I promise, will be a game changer in how you see God and how you see life and even your entire walk with God this side of heaven. So here is the best definition of joy from a biblical perspective that I know of, and that is that joy is a longing and a desire that is built upon hope. I I know this is not what you were expecting, but you gotta hang in there with me. Joy is a longing and a desire that's built upon hope. And now to be sure, joy is an emotion. It is something you and I feel. It's visceral in nature. It's an emotion that flows from our thoughts and even from our experiences. But please hear this. It is not some giddy, shallow, feel-good type of emotion that our world tends to equate with it. Not at all. In fact, check this out. Joy is actually a very patient emotion. It's an incomplete emotion. It's an anticipatory emotion. In other words, joy is something that wells up uh, with a positive longing and a deep-seated desire that begins to flood the soul with hope. That's joy. This last summer, I reread a book that I've read before by C.S. Lewis called Surprised by Joy. It's one of his earlier autobiographies on when he first came to the Lord and experienced joy. And look at what he says about joy. This is pretty rich. He says, joy is an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. Interesting definition, don't you think? It's an unsatisfied desire, you'll see what that means in a minute here, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction you can get this side of heaven. So joy is a longing, it's a desire that we feel in our soul, that's the essence of joy, but it's a longing and desire that fills us with anticipatory hope, and you and I call that joy. Now, if you're still confused, and I can see that many of you are, because I look in your eyes, uh, I want to show you what I mean by doing a rather rich biblical flyover of joy. Uh, when Galatians 5, 2, or 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, say it with me, joy. Uh, when it says that uh, there, uh, that word joy is the Greek word kara. It appears some 59 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. And when you look closely, as I did this week, at each and every instance of how the New Testament uses this word kara, you begin to see what I'm suggesting to you tonight, and that is that what the New Testament writers are describing when they use that word kara, that we translate joy, is a longing and a desire that they're experiencing more than anything else. Let me show you what I mean. I want to begin with the very words of Jesus. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, and by extension, you and I, about joy and what it is. Look at John 16, verses 20 to 21. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy, kara. 
Uh, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy, kara, that a child has been born into the world. Now, now let me ask you, I need you to think deeply about this. Uh, what is this woman experiencing, according to Jesus here, when she experiences joy? What is she feeling in her very soul? Is it not a longing and a desire that the presence of a newborn child now evokes in her spirit? A hope that now is living in her soul that this child is in this world and all that that means and all that it will bring? Don't miss this. It's a feeling of anticipation and hope. And any of you ladies who have been given, given birth to a child, you know that that's what you feel. That's the essence of the joy that you have. Yes, it's present tense, but it's not a complete feeling because you're, you're looking on the horizon with hope, desire, longing, and anticipation. And the very nature of doing that gives you joy. As you're chewing on that, look at another direct teaching on joy by Jesus, this time when he's talking about Abraham from the Old Testament and Abraham's experience with joy. And let's parse this one out. Jesus says in John 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad or joyful. So again, what gave Abraham, I need you to think about this, the feeling of rejoicing and gladness? Wasn't it a longing to see the day of Christ? And God gave him a taste of that even in the Old Testament, and he experienced joy at the very taste of that, an anticipation of what was to come in Jesus. It was hope that was living in Abraham's soul. I hope you're starting to see. This is why Romans 12, verse 12 says this. We are to rejoice in, say it with me, hope. You see, rejoicing and hope are bedfellows. They go together. The very nature of experiencing joy is experiencing a longing and a desire of what God is doing and wanting to still see him do more. It's a hope-filled emotion. And then if you're still not convinced, let's look at one last uh, passage here that has directly to do with joy, with Karah, uh, this time with how Jesus himself, when he was on this earth, experienced joy in one of his most difficult times, in fact, the most difficult time on this earth. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, Karah, that was before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so again, again, what gave Jesus joy on the cross? Don't miss this, gang. It was anticipation. It was longing and desire for atoning for the sins of the world and then being reunited with God the Father in heaven. It's kara, joy. And unlike many of the emotions that you and I experience this side of heaven, they give immediate and instant gratification. Joy does not work that way. Lewis is right. 
It's an unsatisfied desire, a feeling that comes from a longing that is built upon hope, a longing for a child's future life, a longing for a Messiah who is yet to come, even a longing to be reunited with the Father in heaven. What do all those things have in common? It's a desire, a longing, and the thirst itself is what brings joy to one's heart. And though this longing is not completely satisfied this side of heaven, some of you are already hearing that, that's not a bad thing. As we're going to see as we go along tonight, it's actually a very good thing. It's just a very different kind of emotion than we usually have. And now, what, what further helps us understand this emotion of joy uh, is when the New Testament then contrasts it, now watch this, <laughs> with pleasure. With pleasure. In Jesus' day, it's interesting, the Greeks had a few words for joy, one of which was kara, and then they had another word that in the English we translate pleasure, and interestingly, it was the Greek word hedone, where we get the English word hedonism from. Those of you who don't know it, hedonism is simply the love of pleasure. It's the love of that feeling of immediate gratification that you and I get from the things in this world. And it's interesting, Plato and Aristotle, who were obviously Greek writers before the day of Jesus, didn't make any distinction between hedone and kara. Isn't that interesting? And they just saw it all as one. They weren't spiritual writers. They were intellectuals. They said, hey, it feels like the same thing. It's kind of the same thing. And they just used them interchangeably. But then the Stoics came along, and they did make a distinction. They saw hedone as a more base, animal-like emotion that comes from physical and sensual gratification. And they saw kara as more of a refined emotion that comes from rich thinking and affects the soul that way. But then when the New Testament writers came along, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, they went nuts on this distinction. And they made a very sharp distinction between the two. As simply put, they would write that hedone comes from the flesh and is simply pure, physical, immediate, and emotional gratification, while kara, as we have seen, they describe as a deep-seated joy that presents itself as a longing and a desire built upon hope in one's soul. And obviously, they argue that joy is a rich fruit of the Spirit, while hedone, on its best day, they argued is an emotion that we need to be careful of because it's shallow and even, if we're not careful, addicting. And so look at how the New Testament writers would go on to use uh, this word hedone, because they did use it a few times. Uh, look, give me a click here. When Jesus at one point was talking about the seed and the soils, give me a click here, uh, and telling that parable, he gets to the seed that, that, that falls on the thorny ground, and he says this. He says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard the gospel, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and and here it is, pleasures, hedone, of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. Now, isn't that an interesting image there? According to Jesus, people who live simply for pleasures, hedone, of this life, will bring no fruit to maturity. And then you flip forward to Galatians chapter 5, and it says one of the fruits of the Spirit is kara. 
This longing desire built upon hope. Then in even more terse language, Paul would say to Timothy at one point in talking about the last days, the days that we're in right now, uh, these words, look at how he uses this word. He says, in the last days, men will be lovers of pleasure, hedone, rather than lovers of God. And so here you have contrasted those who have the feeling of immediate gratification from the things of this world, lovers of pleasure, uh, with those who love God and only the joy that he can bring. In a very real sense, guys, but when it comes to our sanctification, if you don't hear anything else tonight, hear this. It's hedone versus kara. It is. It's pleasure versus joy when it separates the men from the boys and women from the gals in the Christian life. Again, as Lewis says, we're talking about an unsatisfied desire which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction even hedone or pleasure. And so in a very practical way, let's just get down to brass tacks. This is what we're talking about tonight. Hedone is the pleasure of a good meal. Hedone is the pleasure of a good round of golf. It's the pleasure when the Cardinals win that some of us might experience tomorrow, right? It's the pleasure when the Dow and the NASDAQ are riding high, which if you follow it did not happen this week except for Friday with a slight rebound. It's that feeling of immediate and yet obviously fleeting gratification that comes from the things of this world. And though the New Testament warns us of the dangers of hedone, let's all be mature about it, the New Testament also understands that earthly pleasures are not bad in and of themselves. It's just that they aren't very deep. They don't last. And they should never be relied upon to give us ultimate contentment or satisfaction in life. You see, that's kara, that's joy. I just told you what hedone was, here's what joy is. Uh, joy is when Kim, my wife, said yes to me when I was proposing. You see, I was filled with a longing and a desire the moment that she said yes of what our life together would look like. And that longing and that desire, <clears throat> excuse me, gave me joy. Uh, joy it was seeing my three children born, just like Jesus's example. Because the day that they were born, I had joy, but make no mistake, it was a longing and a desire built upon hope of what this family just might look like as we submit to God. Joy is anytime you and I have answered prayer. In, in our walk with the Lord, hope in God's activity in our life and that he might do even more. Do you see? Uh, joy is that feeling of longing desire that is just now beginning to be seen and experienced and hope is now on the horizon. That's joy. And what is most tricky about this feeling, and some of you are wrestling with this right now, is that it's a feeling that is not completely satisfied this side of heaven. And the reason that it's not satisfied, gang, is because it's so deep, it's so rich, the longing in your soul is so great that only heaven and the full presence of God is ever going to give you complete joy. Amen? And so the joy that you have now, and some of you are already feeling this, doesn't feel like pleasure and this is why I said some people can be miserable and even have joy, or they can be hurting and struggling and have joy, because joy goes much deeper than the wind and waves of our lives. It's that undercurrent 
that's a longing and a desire, not complete at all, because that doesn't come till heaven, but it's a longing and a desire that we get now, and that's joy. Could it be that this was what the psalmist meant when he says in Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Could it be that the psalmist was feeling joyful at that time? I want to give you an illustration that's going to seem a little bit crass, but I think it works. I, uh, I have two dogs at home. Uh, one of our dogs is named Callie, and the other one is Cooper. Callie is a shepherd mix that we rescued off an Indian reservation when we first moved here to Arizona a few years back, and uh, she is sweeter than sweet can be. Uh, my dog Cooper is a purebred Jack Russell Terrier. Yeah, we call him a Jack Russell Terror. That's what he is. But we love him just like I love some of you. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I care for him. And he's actually, I think I've told you a story before. It's a true story. I, I gave Cooper, our Jack Russell Terrier, to Kim on her birthday. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, on Christmas, five years ago. And my birthday is nine days after Christmas. And so nine days after Christmas, she re-gifted Cooper to me. <laughs> and so he's actually my dog. And the dogs get fed every night. Uh, they get one pepperoni in the morning, and then every night uh, they get fed. And uh, when I walk through the door, because I'm the one that feeds the dog, and when I walk through the door every night, they are waiting right there. They hear the garage door open. They start to go a little crazy. And as soon as I walk through the door, there are tails wagging, and, and they are just looking at me, and, and they are so excited. In fact, Cooper will even jump. He can jump out this high, jumps on the back door continually because the, the food is on the other side of the back door in the garage. And, and, and he jumps there, giving me the message that it's time to eat. Now, it's interesting. They are excited. They're feeling something. And yet they have had no pleasure of a good meal that they have experienced yet. By analogy, what would God call that? He would call that joy. Pleasure is the meal. But the anticipation, the longing, the desire that, that quite frankly, arguably, gets them more excited, more tails wagging, is that longing. That's the joy for my dogs. There are some nights that I come in and, uh, and I got things to do, and so I don't feed them right away. I'm prolonging their joy. And, and, and they will follow me around the house, and if I sit down to eat first, oh my gosh, Cooper will sit there and just look at me the whole time. And you could tell if he could speak, he'd be saying, you are a loser by not feeding us. He's in anticipation mode. He's in longing mode. He's in desire mode. And God says that's joy. And now, let me drop the bomb on you. Could this be why God, for some of us, doesn't feed us like, he want, like we want him to? Could it be this is why God doesn't gratify us with pleasures like we want him to? Because he wants to keep us in the realm of joy, longing and desire and thirst for him. I think so. This week, I uh, went up to Denver on Wednesday night. I uh, do that almost quarterly. I fly into Denver, and on Wednesday night and all day Thursday, I spend time with a dear friend who's actually a mentor of me. His name's Larry Crabb. He's been a friend now for almost 20 or 30 years. He's an author. And Larry hates it when I call him a mentor because he says, all we do is have a conversation. 
and he says, you're my friend, I'm your friend, and we just have a rich time of 24 hours together. We have dinner together, and then we talk for about three hours, and then I stay at his house, we go to bed, we get up early next morning, we go to breakfast, we talk all morning, we have lunch, we talk till about three in the afternoon. And it's amazing for my soul. He really has affected me as a spiritual guide in my life. This week when I went up there, I, I had some things to really unload on him. He's my confessor too. And I'm going to take a little risk telling you guys this, but I don't think it'll surprise you. I, um, I, I, at one point he said, so what's going on? I said, you know, I turned 52 a week ago, and here's what's going on, Larry. I said, I have an amazing marriage to Kim. I mean, I don't know why, but the woman just loves me. I have a wonderful church. We just baptized 150 people on one day. We came through a successful Compelled by Grace campaign. It's growing. People are coming to the Lord. I have a great staff. I have three semi-good kids. I said, you know, I am, I am super, super blessed in my life, and, and, and I have the Lord. So if I had the big one tomorrow, I know where I'm going. And I said, and what boggled me when I turned 52 is in the midst of all of that, I wake up almost every morning, and I feel really cruddy about myself. I wake up every morning and I don't see myself as the pastor of a large church. I just see myself as inadequate, insecure, a, a veritable mess. And I said, in some days I'm so depressed, I don't, I don't even know if I want to get on with my day. I said, I've shared this with the elders, but I just said, you would think after 35 years of knowing the Lord that I'll be further along. Larry looked at me and he said, you know, it's actually surprising to hear you say that. He said, because, you know, your congregation will probably say, well, your public persona certainly doesn't match your inward life. And I said, well, that's accurate, but that doesn't make me feel good at all. I said, that's, that's accurate. And I said, I, I don't get it. I said, and I've tried everything. I've, I've been in therapy. I've dealt with my father wounds. I've even gone to healing services. I'll own that, guys. I have. I've had people lay hands on me and say, Lord, take this spirit away from him. Because somehow I just have this deep-seated insecurity that, that just plagues me in my soul. And, and I beg God to take it away from me. As Larry and I were talking about this, and literally I'm just about in tears as I'm laying out the state of my soul before him. He asked me at one point, he says, um, he says so what do you want God to do? That was the $10 question. I said to him, I said, I know what I want God to do. I want God to make me feel better. I just want to feel good about my life. I want to stop feeling insecure. I want to stop feeling like a mess. I want God to make me feel better. I meet people in my church who aren't nearly as smart as me, and they feel great. They're not nearly as godly as me, and they feel good. I said, it drives me crazy. Why? I want to feel better. And Larry had me right where he wanted me. He said, that's very interesting. He said, so, so what happens when you don't feel better? I said, well, I cry out to God. See, he used to lead me somewhere. I said, I cry out to God. I, I beg him to take this away from me. I beg him to help me feel better. And he says, then what happens? I said, well, then I realize how much I need him and how much I need to depend on him. He said, so you're kind of like Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12. But when Paul the Apostle cried out three times for the Lord to take away his thorn in the flesh, and the Lord said to him, I'm not taking it away because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast gladly about my weaknesses. And I thought, oh my gosh, could it be that one of the reasons that God allows your pastor to be a tortured soul <laughs> 
in the midst of all the good things going on is because he wants them in a state of dependency. Kim has told me that a thousand times. She has said to me, point blank, she has said, I actually would worry what would happen if God gave you too much confidence. She said, at the very least, I can promise you, I would not want to live with you. She says, but the mere fact that you have this insecurity that you can't even explain in your soul uh, riding there, she says, makes you the humble man that I want to be with. And you know the challenge I walked away, Larry always asked me, you know, when I'm leaving Denver, he says, you know, well, what are you taking with you? And I usually feel pretty beat up, but I said, you know, what I'm taking with me this time is that I need to find more joy in the thirst, more joy in the longing, more joy, as Michael Card sang about years ago, in the journey, because I so want God to give me pleasure that I'm robbing myself of the joy that he has right before me. I want to ask you today, if you are having a cup of coffee, this would be the question I'd ask you very personally. Uh, Which do you want more in in your life if you had to choose, joy or pleasure? Uh, The fleeting, immediate emotion that makes you feel good, but you know isn't going to last, at least into eternity, or the emotion that presents itself as a longing, a desire, uh, built upon a true and living hope that only God can provide. Which deep down do you want more? And even further, I would ask you if we were having a private time today, uh, which do you pursue more in your life? See, see, that's where God has me. Because <laughs> the truth be known, I pursue way too much pleasure, even as your pastor. I demand God give me pleasure here, and I demand that things go well, and I demand that life be this way. And, and I think many times God looks at me and says, Jamie, you don't get it. I, I've given you joy unspeakable right in front of you by this Holy Spirit who lives in you, this Jesus who died for you, uh, the God who's always available to me. And and, and as Jonah said in Jonah chapter 2, you forfeit the grace that could have been yours by seeking after all this other stuff. Which do you pursue more? Maybe after today's time, you just might be leaning more toward a life focused on joy. At least I hope so. And as we wrap up here today, uh, let me just talk briefly about how to experience joy. I put this in your outline. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, says something, well, kind of surprising. He says this, and this is a very interesting statement. He says, joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Now, now that's a very interesting statement. You've got to wrestle with this. Joy is never in our power. Pleasure often is. Now, what does he mean by that? I think what he means by this is precisely what we're looking at today, that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm going to keep hammering this home to us, guys. It's his work in us. In a sense, it's not our power to create these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. These are things that God wants to create in us. And so we really don't have the power here. Pleasure, as we all know, is something that we got a lot of power over. Can you own that tonight? You can go out here tonight and in inappropriate ways and maybe even appropriate ways, find pleasure. There's lots of it to find out there and it'll make you feel good in the short term. But think about it. Joy doesn't work that way as we've seen. Uh, But it doesn't mean that we can't position and posture our lives for joy. As I said to you last week, there's a certain way that you can stand and face and sit that places you in the pathways of God's grace that just might allow the Spirit to blow on you, 
to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the like. And joy works the same way. And so here's how you experience joy. And again, this is going to throw some of you, but I'm telling you, this is true. Joy is an expression, it's an emotion that flows from activities other than seeking joy. (laughs) Gosh, this is so important. Every spiritual writer says this. This is not mine. I don't even know who to give credit to because everybody I've ever read on joy says this. Joy never comes by seeking joy. Pleasure works that way. You can get pleasure by going out tonight and seeking pleasure, and you'd be a wonderful little Christian hedonist. But the reality is, is that joy only comes through seeking other activities that place you in the pathway of God that just might give you joy. Remember how Jesus said it in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things, including joy, will be added to you as well. So there it is. Joy never comes by seeking joy. So the question becomes, and we have like six minutes to answer this, <laughs> is what do we need to do then? What activities might give us joy? I spent a lot of time in my study this week just following, tracing the whole journey of joy throughout the Bible. <coughs> There's hundreds of passages. And it's fascinating when you do a study on joy in the scriptures, you realize that there are times that God equates joy with the seeking of other things in this world. Let me just share with you five of them very quickly. First is that when you run to God in times of need, there's a good chance you might find joy. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you, God, rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. So that's why I said earlier, there's going to be people here tonight that are struggling deeply and richly in your life right now, and you can also be experiencing joy. Why? Because in your struggle, you're running to him. And when you run to him, you're going to rejoice in the refuge. You're going to sing for joy in the protection that God gives you. And again, it's just one of the ways we experience joy. A second way we experience joy is through God's word and his truth. Look at how Jeremiah says it in the Old Testament. He says, your words were found and I ate them. (laughs) And your words became for me a, say it with me, joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So, so Jeremiah ate the very words of God. He assimilated them into his soul, and they became for him a, a joy. And then look at how Jesus would tell us this in John 15, 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, or at least as full as it can, this side of heaven. I, I got to tell you, it's for another sermon, but I experience this all the time. There are times when I'm studying the Bible or even just reading it and, 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 and I'm preparing for a sermon or just having my devotions and, and there's times where I run across something in the Bible here and I know some of you have this experience too and all of a sudden it jumps off the page at me and I think this thing to myself, I think, if this is true, oh, if this is true, how amazing is that? Now, now what am I experiencing at that time? It's not pleasure. It's a longing. It's a desire built upon God's truth and what he has said. That if this is true, if this is how God works, then imagine what my life can be hidden in him. And that very experience gives me joy. 
but I didn't get it by seeking joy. I got it by God's word and his truth. And then a third way, and this one's huge, is pouring into others. But look at how 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says it. He says, for who is our hope or joy, kara, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? And then look at how John would say it uh, in 3 John 1.4. He says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So over and over again, in the New Testament and the Old, you got people that poured into other people at a rich spiritual level, and in that process, they would experience joy. I, uh, somebody gave me a letter here last week that was very moving to me. It was a guy who's battling cancer in our congregation, and he's, he's just a sweet, tender, wonderful man. Uh, and he has poured into a lot of people over the years. And, and the cancer is fairly serious. We need to, to pray for him. He's a, a dear friend of ours in our church and a member here. And uh, he shared me this letter that, that one young gal gave him because he's poured his life, he and his wife has, into lots of families in our church. And this one young gal, when she heard of his cancer, just wrote him a letter. I'm not going to mention names because it's confidential, but I asked him if I could read a portion of it. She says, Dear Mr. So-and-so, I've heard the news about your cancer. It mourns me, to say the least, that you have been such an influential figure in my life. I remember going to your house and watching Narnia, talking at your Sunday school class at SBC and, 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 and your fun energy of father-child camps. You are my friend. You're my mentor. You're my encourager. As the road ahead is unclear and bumpy, I want to say a few things. The most important is that I appreciate and love you a lot. You have always been loving and accepting of me. You spoke with kindness and patience, even when you taught me how to shoot a gun. (laughs) I I, I would live that over and over again. Not once did you criticize or turn me away, me or my family, and that is something I hold dear. Also, your faith has encouraged me throughout the years. The trust that you and your wife have in God is unreal. Within your life journeys, there have been ups and downs, but you have always trusted God and looked to him in where your life you should go. This has been a blessing to see with my own eyes. She goes on to close it off. She says, I'm lucky to have you in my life and as a mentor. You have loved and been a blessing to my parents as well. I thank you for your friendship with them because I know that they need you and love you more than words can say. Peace be with you. And thank you for your investment in my life. I love you, Mr. So-and-so, and and then her name. Uh, When I read this after getting home last week from preaching, the only thought I could think of is, I wonder what feeling this man had when he got a letter like this. I think we know the answer tonight, don't we? It's joy. It's a longing and a desire built upon hope for all that this young girl's life is going to become because of his and other people's investment in her life. See, that's joy. And many times it comes when we pour into others around us. Again, this is for another sermon, but a fourth way that joy comes into our lives. Again, you're not seeking joy itself is through trials. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials. You see the link here between trials and joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces uh, perseverance. And then in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, Paul says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy, kara, of the Holy Spirit. 
And again, there's a link between trials and difficulties and joy. Why? We already went through this, gang. Trials contain longing and desire. They lead us to depend on God in unique ways, and this gives us hope, and the very nature of that is joy, which is why some of you here tonight are hurting deeply, but you have joy. Honor what's going on in your soul. And then lastly, and with this we're done, prayer is a source of joy. Paul says, always offering prayer mixed in with joy in every prayer that I have for you. And again, prayer is a form of longing. It's a prayer of desire. You're laying out things before God that you want to see happen, the God who loves you. And in this longing and desire is joy. Don't ever forget this. Joy is an expression which flows from activities other than seeking joy. So as we go to our elder fund offering that we're going to do before we leave here tonight and we get a good chance to worship before we go, I would close by saying this. Do you want to be surprised by joy? Do you? You know, every time I use that phrase from Lewis's surprised by joy, I see meaning and desire written over all of your guys' faces. I do, because I know you want that kind of joy. Here's what you need to know. You can have it. It's only going to come from God. Because as the psalmist says, there's weeping in the night but there's joy in the morning. Let's pray. God, I, if it almost my guess, there are some of us here tonight that um, are moved in our spirit as we look at your word because we're seeing joy differently than maybe we have. God, many of us function like Aristotle and Plato. We just mix joy and pleasure and gladness and happiness and, and kind of funnel along to the same funnel and say, yeah, I get that sometimes and other times I don't. I pray tonight, God, we would not be so shallow. But that tonight, Lord, we would make a distinction, as your word does, between the hedone, the pleasures of this world, and the kara, the joy, that is only found in you. And God, let's not kid ourselves. It's a long and rich road, and even a battle for joy. And Lord, it begins with that longing and that desire that we all have to, have know, to know more of you and to have more of you, and even to lay out the true nature of our soul before you. And so God, as we do that, as Lewis said so well, would you surprise us with joy? <laughs> would you enter into our lives in such a way that we get a taste of you so that we might see, as the psalmist says, that we taste and see that the Lord is good? Do that in us, we pray. And we will give all praise and glory to you in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. <laughs>